Welcome to the Public Philosophy Series for Living Philosophy, which explores with academic guests philosophical ideas that matter to our everyday life. The Public Philosophy episodes are distinguishable from our regular episodes by the bespoke thumbnail artwork provided by the Tour Studios. As always, if you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed our past episodes, please take the time to rate and review Living Philosophy wherever you are streaming content. I'm your host, Dr. Todd May. Mental health has become a prominent topic in the public sphere. The pandemic forced many of us to change dramatically the way we socialize. It brought us to realize how much we depend on the physical nearness of others to help us live a well-balanced and meaningful life. Depression, anxiety, and loneliness were things with which each one of us was forced to reckon in varying degrees as lockdown conditions and social distancing created a vacuum of isolation. And this is not even to consider how mental health can be significantly affected by traumatic events. The American Psychological Association describes trauma as, quote, an emotional response to a terrible event like an accident, rape, or natural disaster. Immediately after the event, shock and denial are typical. Longer-term reactions include unpredictable emotions, flashbacks, strange relationships, and even physical symptoms like headaches or nausea, end quote. Suffice it to say, there are many of us who have suffered trauma and may be reluctant to believe so, or we may even be unaware that we experienced it. One reason for this is how mental health is often seen to be a psychological or emotional problem with no real medical cure since it's emotional and all in the head. And so the thinking goes, if trauma is an emotional response to some event, surely we can overcome or dissolve our emotional reaction through the light of cold reason. But unfortunately, we are embodied beings after all, and not simply floating brains. In this podcast series, we've heard from Dr. David Corfield to discuss the intimate link between the body and the mind when it comes to illness, and how a more balanced and effective medical approach would begin with treating the mind and body together. On this episode, we'll hear from Dr. Anna Weston about the ways in which trauma and mental illness are in fact embodied. That is, not purely mental or in the head. Anna has recently published a book with Routledge Press on trauma entitled Embodied Trauma and Healing, Critical Conversations on the Concept of Health. Anna is lecturer at St. Melitus College in the UK and holds honorary fellowships at the University of Kent and the Bakita Center for Research on Slavery, Exploitation, and Abuse at St. Mary's University. She is also director of the JAM Network UK, which is a survivor-focused anti-trafficking community. But that's not all. Anna is also a musician who draws on the Irish, choral, and Swedish folk traditions when fusing them with modern and experimental indie folk sounds. She has recently released an album entitled Lev, which you can find on Spotify. Anna, welcome to Living Philosophy. Thanks, Dr. May. It's so good to be here. So how did you get into the topic of health, especially as it relates to the mind-body relation? I actually started my undergraduate as a kinesiologist doing sports science uh, in Canada. And I, I just thought that you could do philosophy for fun. I didn't really, I didn't really know that you could do, you know, you could study philosophy. We didn't do it at, uh, in high school like you do in the UK. But I had an eating disorder during my adolescence. And I had also been reading a lot of Kierkegaard. And I found that actually it was Kierkegaard who helped me to understand myself in my lived experience of my eating disorder and, and eventually overcoming the eating disorder in a way that just reading psychological texts alone, they weren't delving into the subjectivity, the lived experience of it. 
So I was doing kinesiology and I was reading loads of philosophy on the side and then realized that actually I could study philosophy. (laughs) So that interconnection between science and health and particularly mental health and philosophy has kind of been there since my my undergraduate. For audience members who don't know about Soren Kierkegaard, he's a 19th century Danish philosopher who is often uh, associated with the existentialist tradition. And he is most well known for his book. I was going to say Fear and Loathing, but that's a Hunter S. Thompson book, <laughs> Fear and Trembling. <laughs> and he, you may have heard about his notion. Uh, well, he gives a philosophical account about the relationship to faith in which people like to describe his existential philosophy as relating to the leap of faith. But there's a lot that goes on with his thinking that's more complex than that. And actually, he's a very difficult philosopher to read because he uses narrative as a way to tell what he thinks or to say what he thinks. And he often writes in character, so it becomes very difficult to understand what the point of view of the character is. Is it Kierkegaard speaking through the character, his own point of view, or is it something, is it another point of view that Kierkegaard wants to set up so that he can elaborate it, respond to it, disagree with whatever it might be? So that's just a little context. But Anna, the question is, what particular aspects of Kierkegaard's philosophy spoke to you during this time when you were trying to understand uh, your own bodily mental health? I think it was that Kierkegaard asked, what if? He didn't say, this is it. And when he came in with his pseudonyms, he was always saying, you know, this isn't actually me. I'm just presenting an idea. And I think in exploring, especially exploring mental health, I think that what if Let's let's try this out as an experience of what's going on. And I found that really rich as a way of understanding, understanding my experience, but then understanding other experiences of others, because I ended up working with the teaching hospital at the same time as doing my undergraduate. And we did extensive work with people who had anorexia nervosa. So this idea of not this is it, but what if this was part of the experience? What if anxiety was part of the experience? What does that mean? What if despair was part of the experience? This this infinite self-becoming. And is that part of the what if exercise? Is it also an exercise in role-playing where you can actually see yourself in a different context and, and sort of imagine your life going differently? And as a result of that, being able to uh, gain a critical distance as well as uh, a for lack of a better word, uh, a, a non-attachment or detachment from the things you would like to correct or address in some way? I think definitely uh, that's the case. I also think because Kierkegaard can use, he can use fiction, poetry, as well as irony, he gives us different tools. So, you know, imagine your experience as one in which you're you have to give up your true love and you're in despair or imagine your experience as you know an ethical judge who who sees life as an ordered set of principles it's imagining uh, yourself lived you're kind of you're living out of your experience since your book is on trauma and trauma is not an everyday kind of mental health bodily experience these are significant events that, as I mentioned, uh, since I, I'm not an expert in the psychological literature, but I know about or I've heard about some accounts from colleagues where people experience trauma, especially at an early age, and they don't really realize they've gone through it. And yet something mm-hmm. later on in life that reoccurs or occurs will trigger that traumatic event. 
and they'll have certain medical symptoms that arise as a result of it. So can you say a little bit more about trauma in relation to everyday stress and mental disorders? And even if you know, I gave that account of what trauma is, according to the American Psychological Association, even if you disagree with that definition because it's not complete enough or doesn't address a lot of the nuances about what goes on in trauma. I mean, I think trauma is so interesting. We, I think we use it in common language a lot now where we say, you know, uh, society traumatizes generally, da, 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 da. kind of clinically speaking, there are traumas and there are not traumas. And, and there are diagnostic tools for us to discern what is a trauma based on symptoms. So something like the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual classifies traumas under uh, a, a, in a particular way as a particular kind of, of, of a collection of symptoms that can be treated. And that, that came out of trying to figure out how to, to treat people, especially during the Vietnam War when veterans were coming back from the war uh, with, with these different symptoms. Vander Koch, who, is a, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score, who's, who's, who's quite popular at the moment, looking at the bodied experience of trauma, says that trauma is the experience of being traumatized and continuing to organize our life as if the trauma is present. And I think that's a really interesting thing. So so as if the past event is actually being lived out in the present and we're organizing our experiences around that. Rambo, a theologian, says that it is a suffering that remains. And you see kind of in the statistical literature, you see that um, often there's a high correlation between mental health diagnosis and trauma, especially in childhood. So if you have a diagnosis of mental health in childhood, there's about a 44% uh, chance that that child has been traumatized. In adults, it's about a 30% chance. Um, so there is this, there is a, a, a significant correlation. It's not, it's not, it's not 100%, but, but there is a significant enough correlation. So I know one of the topics that comes up quite a bit in philosophy of religion, I think there was a debate between or a discussion between a Zen Buddhist monk and the uh, psychologist, psychoanalyst Carl Jung. And it was an interesting one because Jung is often notorious for wanting to say that all these different traditions basically are part of his own psychological theory. So they all, so Jung was the master theoretician who organized this universal theory about the psyche and the archetypes. And then each religious tradition we find actually is just an example of what he's talking about. So it's kind of <laughs> a, a, kind of an imperialistic approach. I don't know how popular he is today, but certainly back in the 90s when um, I was taking my classes in undergraduate, he was quite in focus. But one of the conversations he had with the Buddhist monk, as Carl Jung was trying to say that Zen Buddhism is like the psychology I describe, and here's how, the Zen Buddhist monk replied, uh, psychology and psychoanalysis, as far as I understand it, are about therapy, whereas uh, Buddhism is about curing. And of course, this is the curing, the curing the ignorance. So I just use that kind of story to set up how you're understanding trauma and this idea that trauma is the suffering that remains. So is it the case that there is no cure for trauma or that if there is a cure, it's not something that can be systematically thought about and applied and works universally in each and every instance? Or is the idea that um, cure is just the wrong way to think about trauma because I'm thinking of the words of, of Freud about mourning. So it's the work of mourning. So because we are embodied existential beings, we are we have a finite existence. It's just not 
to think it's something we can just rid ourselves of is a wrong way of thinking about who we are, what we are. And so it's more of a manner of working through it, coping with it and allowing and being able to live well with the things that don't go, uh, that don't work well within us. Do you have any uh, perspective on those kinds of that range of issues I just threw out there? I think I'm um, continuing to hold the challenge of, you know, whether we can heal, cure. I think I'm interested in what it means to be healed. Uh, Norwegian philosopher Ulla Sigurdsson talks about the WHO's definition of what is health. And it's the absence of all these things. And, And he suggests, actually, it's the ability to live vulnerably, which entails suffering and and to reorganize ourselves as agents in the midst of our suffering. So he kind of problematizes specific definitions of health, which I think is interesting. I think definitely if you're looking at something like somatic uh, experiencing theory, they would say, well, once your body, uh, your nervous system has, you know, restabilized, once the affect has been regulated then in some way you have been healed whereas the maybe psychoanalytic route would look at the narrative being restored or refigured restructured replotted and the catharsis that happens when when we kind of recognize ourselves in that process that would be a kind of healing I think it's an interesting question of, of what does it mean to be healed and what does it mean to be cured and and what definition we're taking as it, I mean I, I found in the in the work it seemed that everyone was taking a slightly different definition of what it was to be cured or healed. And this question I'm gonna ask is gonna to lead to a more technical question about phenomenology, which is the method that sits at the heart of your book. Uh, before we get there, I just want to ask you about any kind of strong evaluation, evaluative position you might have with regard to the picture you just presented. So I guess you could say maybe you're a pluralist and you're happy with all the different accounts of healing that go on. But I suppose you could also say I'm a pluralist. But at the end of the day, I think we have to have an integrative approach or more unitive approach where we see these things working together in some way. And there might be theoretical problems to that and or issues where we just don't have a theory that can bring all these together in one nice, neat, tidy package that people from different disciplines can access. And the other problem might be just a practical barrier where someone who's a psychoanalyst is not going to have the medical training necessarily. And as we heard from Dr. Corfield, David Corfield in previous podcasts, you'll get doctors who have medical training, obviously, but they're not trained in psychoanalysis and the ability to listen or not even the ability to listen to a story, but the ability to be able to elicit a story from the patient and be able to hear it and interpret it in a nuanced way, as opposed to just kind of looking for the medical physical symptoms as um, what really counts. So do you have any strong disagreements with the, the, the institution of mental and medical health as it stands, or do you occupy a more pluralist position uh, the the two I've just described? I have the, the ease of being a philosopher and not a, psychiatrist who's having to go through case by case for, you know, 15 minutes at a time. So I think I feel like I can maintain, maybe it's somehow my role to maintain the plurality and say, I actually think we need to have a plurality of definitions and experiences of, of cure and healing whilst 
also recognizing the practical reality, which is that there are certain things that work for certain individuals and certain things don't. So, you know, if if someone has pain all throughout their body and can't function because of some some um, experience of trauma, then you need to focus on how to alleviate that pain. So you could work work with that through narrative or you could work with it through somatic experiencing. I was talking to some colleagues in Sweden and they've got a physiotherapist who works with their mental health department. So they're acknowledging the, the interconnection between the body and the mind. So they're working with the psychiatric team. So I think that, I mean, having a team of practitioners working together to address these different parts of the subjective experience, like the body and the mind, and 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 even looking at at medications to alleviate um, particular symptoms, and I think it's I think that's important. So yes, a plurality, but also practically worked out through maybe a team of, of practitioners. <laughs> David Corfield was talking about the instance that he knew of personally, where he was living in Yorkshire in the United Kingdom, where. The physician, the the village physician or the town physician, the one physician who, who was taking care of so many people, actually was also trained or training himself in psychoanalysis or had some formal training was, but was supplementing it in some way. He had this position where he was able to know the life stories of each of his patients from when they were young to when they were going old. And David thought this was an a, an immense, not only just a virtue but advantage to being able to understand what kind of illnesses might be manifesting in someone. So we might just think, well, if someone's getting an ulcer, it's just because they're stressed out at the time. But the other side of the story might be, well, maybe this is traumatic and maybe it, the trauma is manifesting from, you know, as early as childhood going forward. And so you have to have, I guess, I, I don't know how to describe what that kind of system is, except that it's more holistic and narrative based. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess if we use philosophical terms, it, it's more diachronic in the term in terms of it's taking a longer snapshot of time as opposed to being synchronic or episodic and just looking at the symptoms as they stand in relation to the patient. I know doctors don't do that. I know they, they see the history of the patient, but not to the extent I don't think that you're talking about or that David was talking about. Is there, this question's out of the blue, um, is there anything in society in general, that can help us better understand the relationship of the body and the mind to these larger narratives that are not just present for a couple years or a couple months, but things that span, you know, the the majority of one's life going forward and backwards. I mean, I think our relation to the body in you know, I mean, for lack of a better term, the West is highly complicated research with particularly in Canada with First Nations people, where actually the physical experience of being connected to the land is a part of the trauma is really important to look at in order for us to understand who a person is and how they're experiencing something to be difficult because this the body's connection not only to their community but to the land itself is so significant 
And I think we maybe I mean I'm in a city in London. I have you know I have Hampstead Heath, which I love, but there is a there is a lack of connection to land and and also I mean you really have to practice to remember that you're a body, especially if you're a philosopher. I teach I'm a Pilates teacher, and one of the reasons I love doing that is because I keep remembering that I have like the members of my body are part of who I am. And I think that's such a, for me, it's such an important exercise because it's like I'm, I'm remembering myself, not just as a mind, but also as a body. And I think there's also a really important piece, which is also as someone who's connected to the land and to the space and place that we're living in. And I think the body itself is al- always responding to the environment. I mean, we know that from psychology 101, but that but actually the the environment, the space that we find ourselves in being significant. I was thinking also about the relationship to technology. And I'm a bit of I'm not a technophobe, mm. but I'm certainly very skeptical about people who are just overly positive about technology. And I suppose within the philosophy of technology, I I err on the side of almost as, ascribing an agency to technology. And what I mean by that is. Uh, here's an example I was thinking of when you were talking about remembering the body and how I worry about how a lot of our technological interfaces allow us to forget about the body in its more primary fundamental way. So a lot of my colleagues would be critical of what I've just said because they say, wait, Todd, you're using evaluative terms like the primary and fundamental way in which our bodies are. So you're using some kind of caricature or idea about how the body works and you're you're contrasting that critically with what we're doing now through technological interfaces, as if the original one you're describing, the primary one or fundamental one, is somehow better. And, and they would say, that's just not the case. We've just changed. We, we just do things differently because of technology. And technology, to some extent, is now how we're embodied. We're technologically embodied in some way. And I, I can see that. I mean, I see that in how I relate to my phone and or just how we relate to cars and how we relate to different kinds of technology, like money or currency, if that's a technology, how we relate to the technology of social infrastructure as it manifests uh, publicly, as it were. But there's still a part of me that wants to say, there's got to be something good about, and I'm taking this for granted, what you're describing in the instance of Pilates and what I would describe in the instance of other kinds of activities like surfing or windsurfing, that's fundamentally good. That it, it's this, and I'm going to, I don't want to call it, say it has an innate value to it, but there's something fundamentally good as it relates to how we are as embodied beings, whereas a lot of the technological interfaces we use today somehow either hamper that or stunt it. And then on the other side, they develop different kinds of bodily practices that aren't tied to the way in which we might relate to land, the earth, the physical elements, mm. all those things I would put under the banner of the primary and the fundamental that I've just characterized. So that's kind of mm. laying my cards out as where I stand within uh, philosophy of technology. Mm. But in, in relation to mm. how important it is to remember how we're embodied beings, because there's, um, and I'm assuming if we can remember how we're embodied beings, your, your view is that we can better understand traumatic experiences mm. that manifest bodily mm. as well as mentally. I don't know, is it, you can correct me if, I'm, if I've misrepresented you. That's definitely what I would say. And I think a lot of research on trauma at the moment is really concerned with the body because of how the narrative has played such a central role in healing trauma. And I mean, what Vander Koch, what Peter Levine, 
they're saying is that there's a missing piece, which is that the body itself is keeping the memory. And if we just go to the narrative, we're not actually able to understand what's fully going on. We're not able to, to fully experience what's what's really going on. That some of the things that happen in trauma are pre-language and they're stored in, you know, the more reptilian uh, parts of the brain. And so when we're co- uh, kind of processing them at this higher level, we're actually missing some of the things that, that happened kind of pre-verbally. And I think that the, the the tricky thing with technology too is that sense of embodiment, that sense of true, I mean, if we're talking about attachment theory, which is so huge in trauma, our attachment via technology will be missing the experience, the the experience of touch. It'll be missing the experience of the facing of the other in that kind of really physical way, which which I think there is, I mean, for at least for Levinas, for Merleau-Ponty, all these guys, you know, that's a significant thing is, is the actual presence of the other, not just its representation or its shrouded representation. So that's interesting. So narrative by itself is not enough uh, since if we just talk about stories or tell stories, uh, it requires some kind of grounding within memory of how the embodiment of that story works or um i because part of me wants to think about yeah. these things you might encounter in more new agey settings which i myself would have a very difficult time being a part of where you see these group the- uh, therapy sessions and people really get into their memories and recalling things and they start to act them out in that moment whereas mm-hmm. i guess my idea of, of the talking cure is really talking things telling a story to someone who is able to listen. So is, is there, am I, am, am I right in, in thinking about these two different options? Is there a happy medium or is, are there the, the narrative therapies that really work are the ones that get us to act out in some way as we're, we're thinking or telling the story. And there are wonderful psychoanalysts who are training in bodily affect and this counter-transference between between the client and the, you know, the practitioner. And I think that's wonderful when that happens. I think there are incredible somatic therapists who are doing this deep narrative work as well. I think that that is where the happy medium is. <laughs> I don't think it's either or. And I think that's kind of what my, I think that's what the premise of my book is. It's not either or. And it's how we synthesize being a body and being affected as a body. Levinas talks about subjectivity is affect, is is the affect of of experience on us and our affect, uh, our relation between ourselves and others. And and so it's how do we represent that affect and how do we process that affect? And that has a bodily dimension, I would argue, that it affects our nervous systems. And so attuning to what is happening at the level of the nervous system is important in processing uh, the dysregulated nervous system that has been traumatized by particular events. But that in itself I don't think is enough because the meaning-making piece is so important for us as humans. And so that piece of meaning-making and and personal narrative and who am I now if this happened to me and it, you know, it totally messed up what I thought was normal, you know, normal life for me. 
I think that's really important. They're two parts of the work. Living Philosophy is brought to you by philosophytoyou.com, your public and applied philosophy hotspot for innovation, inspiration, and intelligence. Are you unhappy with your academic career? Do you need help transitioning to the next chapter? Hillary Hutchinson is a career coach specializing in helping academics leave academia. Academia is an unusual place with extremely rigid standards for promotion and due to structural issues with severely limited opportunities. The decision to leave academia can happen at any time in an academic career, whether just graduating with a PhD, deciding mid-career that the academic lifestyle or work content no longer appeals, or even figuring out what to do on retiring after a long academic career. Let Hillary help you now to figure out who you are, what you want to do, and start putting a strategic plan into place to achieve your own dreams. It's not about who you are. It's about who you want to be. Contact Hillary at transitioningyourlife.com or call 843-225-3224 to set up a complimentary appointment and find out more about how she works with clients. In this bold new book, The Infinite Staircase, What the Universe Tells Us About Life, Ethics, and Mortality, high-tech's best-known strategist Jeffrey Moore makes a groundbreaking contribution to the search for meaning in a secular era. Two questions fundamental to human existence have always been the metaphysical, where do I fit in the grand scheme of things, and the ethical, how should I behave? Religion is no longer a source of answers for many people, and nothing has replaced it. Moore uses his signature framework-based approach to answer these questions, taking readers on an intellectual roller coaster ride through physics, chemistry, biology, the social sciences, and the humanities. Along the way, he builds a metaphorical ladder that leads from the Big Bang to the need for ethical action in our daily lives. Combining an extraordinary range of scholarship with an accessible and entertaining writing style, The Infinite Staircase provides a coherent and unified platform for a full human life. The Infinite Staircase is available everywhere fine books are sold. Order your copy today. Understanding and relating to other people is key to the success of individuals and organizations, but doing so can be difficult and involves more art than science. Fortunately, there is a branch of philosophy called hermeneutics that explores how we can better understand and relate to others according to the stories we tell, what we say, and the histories and cultures that form who we are. Hermeneutics in real life is an online project that hosts virtual conversations with academics and professionals discussing how hermeneutics matters to our work and our lives and how it can be a catalyst for positive change. The conversations assume no prior background in hermeneutics and are hosted monthly open to everyone and free of charge. To learn more about participating in these conversations, please visit our website at the letter H, the letter I, the letter N, the letter R, the letter L.org. That's www.hinrl.org. Can we delve a little bit more into affect and the affectative? And I'll just begin with my understanding, which comes mostly from Heidegger and you're speaking of Levinas. Mm-hmm. So mostly from Heidegger and Recur for me, and you're speaking of Levinas and Merleau-Ponty. So this will be great to see how narrow Heidegger is and then where Levinas and Merleau-Ponty go in different directions. How I understand the affectative is really that aspect of our 
being or our existence that is subject to moods and having things act upon us and creating reactions. I know reaction sounds like it's saying that's reactive is might sound pejorative, but uh, by being reactive, I mean that it's actually a way of us being open to other things that go on in the world. And so it is that emotional mm-hmm. layer that Heidegger describes in the context of the atmosphere, the atmospheric feel that one is in. And mm-hmm. he says it's not only just for an individual where we can be in a mood, an anxious mood, um, we're affected by things because of uh, anxiety. Or so the effects that happen to us are through the lens of the affectative mood of anxiety, I guess you could say. And then he also says that ages are, have a certain kind of mood. So he characterized modernity as the age of anxiety and um, technological. I guess you would characterize the age of technology as as something specific. And I'm not quite, I can't recall what that is. It's been a while since I looked at Heidegger. And I think Recur might have a different account. I suppose he's moving more towards the explicitly phenomenological side that Merleau-Ponty was interested in, where he's looking at embodiment, uh, whereas Heidegger just kind of glosses over embodiment, but recurs interested in the way in which we as embodied beings have certain affectative orientations and responses. Mm-hmm. So that's, that was really vague. It's obviously not my area. It's um, recalling what I can what I can from my, my past mm-hmm. readings. But for you, what, what do Levinas and or Merleau-Ponty, uh, what kind of insights do they bring to the affect, affectative dimension? So Levinas, like Recur, affirms the body. And for him, subjectivity is being affected by the other. So he says the subject emerges, is it kind of merges out of this ruptured ego, like the ego is enclosed and happy, happy and content, and you know, it knows what it is to be happy and content and, and full. And this other comes from outside of us and calls out to us. And he says subjectivity is being subject to the call of the other. So really subjectivity itself is is being affected by and thereby um, actually able to respond for him subjectivity is responsibility so he he kind of puts affectivity in the in like like as that this kind of key part of being a subject which is maybe not as comfortable as being an, a self-enclosed ego but <laughs> but it's it's where true life <laughs> for the human experience happens this next comment's going to show up my just pure amateurism when it comes to psychology and psychoanalysis as an academic discipline. But I, I think I'm recalling the essay correctly. It's, I think there was an essay called The Mirror Self, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And Lacan mm-hmm. makes a big deal about the, the child. So the child is this kind of self-enclosed ego. And then the father or the mother coming up to the child. And then this, I guess it's a, you could say it's a traumatic moment. The, the father says to the, the daughter, Oh, your your daddy's little girl, or the mother says to the son, "Your mommy's a little boy. Don't change, you know. Don't don't ever, you know, that kind of thing." And then suddenly, that that child's ego is ruptured by this proclamation, which for the parent is just a, a statement of expressing love and you know cherishing the child. But for the child, it could be this moment of suddenly my identity is now grounded in this notion of being daddy's little girl or mommy's little boy and how that affects their development and self-image. So I guess that's a negative version of, Mm. you can comment on that, a negative version of what Levinas might be talking about, how the affective affective dimension from the other 
really mm. ruptures or shapes the way in which we perceive ourselves. I mean, for loving us, it's quite an extreme thing. Is that we are continuously affected? We are continuously held responsible for the other. But it's coming out of a place which is that, as humans, that we we both know what it is to be in need and to be full. And so, actually, the call of the other is is actually an invoking of hospitality, is what loving us. Says. And then he kind of goes more extreme and says, you know, it's taking hostage, all this stuff, <laughs> which, you know, maybe has problems for uh, trauma theory. But but the original, <laughs> his original thing is this idea of, of it's a, a welcoming of the other. So so that would differ from, from Lacan's understanding. But for Levinas, we are also never, we are never understood by the other. And I think it's also very similar to Kierkegaard and the existentialists. I think there's a lot of existentialism in Levinas, is that the other is always revealing themselves to us. So just as we can never be fully known by the other, the other can never fully know us either. And he was really resisting Heidegger in that. And and actually Heidegger's Nazism. Yeah, there's a lot lot of good stuff to resist in Heidegger, whether it's his, <laughs> his political views or I mean, there's a lot of good stuff as well um, that, yeah, that comes out of Heidegger. But then there's some other things, and I've I've you know since doing my PhD in Heidegger, recurrent and Aristotle, I've moved uh, quite away from mm-hmm. quite quite a bit of away or have a critical distance with Heidegger. So the we've been talking about some key philosophers in the so-called phenomenological tradition. I just want to create a, a little bit more in-depth or with a broader in-depth picture for the audience members who don't quite understand phenomenology. So we talked about Emmanuel Levinas, a little bit about Merleau-Ponty. We talked about Heidegger, uh, who's also within the phenomenological tradition. And we've also talked about Paul Ricoeur, who probably has one foot in and one foot out. He's phenom- he's more of a phenomenological hermeneutist in his earlier work. So I, I bet you my Ricoeur colleagues were about to catch me there. So I said in his earlier work and his later work, it turns more towards uh, hermeneutics and being mediated by language, but not getting rid of phenomenology, but incorporating that within that view about how it's language all the way down or interpretation all the way down kind of thing. So um, that's kind of a really broad landscape of some key philosophers within the phenomenological tradition. And you've talked about some key aspects you've taken from Levinas in relation to uh, embodied trauma and mental health. Is there a way that you would describe in a few sentences how important the phenomenological tradition is, what it does for the, the understanding of embodied trauma, mental health, that other approaches concurrent with it or prior to it just missed or didn't quite disclose in the way that phenomenology can or does. And phenomenology shows how trauma can connect to wider relational embodiment. And that's really valuable. Simon Critchley says it's the science de naivete. It's kind of re-saying what's already been said and re-looking at what's already been looked at um, to understand it afresh. And I think it shows the interconnected experiences of consciousness in a way that I I don't think other philosophical traditions do to to that extent, that idea that, especially in Merleau-Ponty, there's this prismic experience of subjectivity is is, uh, really valuable, I think. You said prismic in terms of uh, different, I guess, beams of light being refracted in different ways. Is that constituting the, the subject and and the idea that? So I'm just going off my own stuff because it, it resonates so well with Recur and Recur resists this idea yeah. that 
we can simply have a theory about what subjectivity or the human self is, mm. and then just think that we're getting, we may be missing some things, but we're certainly getting the most important mm. parts. And Recur very much believes in this idea that the self is mm. fragmented, vulnerable, um, or mm. he, he often talks about, he uses the phrase, the shattered uh, cogito or cogito, however you mm. want to say it. Mm. And part of the idea of living your life is not only trying to cope with it and repair certain aspects of it, but trying to understand one's limitations so that one can live and dwell better with others according to those limitations. Mm -hmm. I guess that's kind of repeating some things that you've already said uh, earlier when we talked about vulnerability. But I I think those are things that can't be underemphasized, mm -hmm. especially in today's climate of uh, social political climate where certainty mm -hmm. and convictions about what one believes tends to dominate uh, just mm -hmm. a lot of the way in which we see others as being represented in the media or see others as they represent themselves through certain kinds of social tags or um, mm -hmm. icons that they, they identify with, whatever it might be. Is there anything in Merleau-Ponty, since I don't know him very well, where he talks about the ways in which that, that refractedness of the self can be brought into more harmonious relation? Because I'm assuming... He doesn't want to try and get rid of that refracted self. He wants to try to better understand mm. it so we can live with it. But I, again, that's just my assumption. I don't know Merleau-Ponty as well as I should. I don't know. The more I think about its phenomenology, the more I think it's so great. And like, I mean, Recur, just he's able to do hold the ambiguity of experience. And I think, isn't that what we need to be able to do? And that challenge of actually being able to translate experience and the fact that we don't get everything when it's translated. I think Merleau-Ponty, I think it's uh, uh, MacDonald who, who talks about the prismic aspect of Merleau-Ponty. And she's talking about how for Merleau-Ponty, the experience, subjective experience contains all these, these planes of intersection. So the ethical is a part of the intersecting plane with consciousness and it's and and the body itself and the body's structures that are processing the information that come to us as subjects that's an, another part of the plane of experience so i think merleau-ponty he talks about this taking it from husserl i think but it's the touching and the touch that at the same time as we are touching the world. We are also being touched by it. So there's this mutual, almost this mutual, not mutual becoming, maybe that's not the right word, but, but this mutual affectivity that's happening in every moment of consciousness. That's interesting. In that account right there, I, I could see all these debates within history of philosophy because that relationship together can't be described as something that just sort of progresses like going up the steps of a ladder because you get this Hegel this Hegelian account of synthesis that uh, ends up mm -hmm. negating important parts about our own identity. Uh, I won't go on any more mm -hmm. about the debates in history of philosophy. I'm mm -hmm. not sure my audience members will find that so interesting. But then just one quick comment. On the other end, I saw that the hesitation with Heidegger because Heidegger would certainly talk about becoming together as a kind of belonging together. So you just have this kind of simple notion of identity that arises uh, arguably within Heidegger's account of subjectivity and intersubjectivity. That's just not simply as nuanced or well-developed as you would find, for example, in, in Levinas or Merleau-Ponty or, or Paul Ricoeur. So stepping away from that theoretical edifice, um, hopefully it wasn't too 
create didn't create too much vertigo for audience members. But I wanted to come back to something in the book, maybe if you could talk about: Are there any particular cases within mental health and embodied trauma that stand out or are very interesting um, that you either discuss in the book or that you remember from your own research that might be illuminating or instructive for audience members? So in my book. Well, I, I speak to a woman who is a Palestinian refugee, and uh, she speaks about her experience of trauma. And I think what is really interesting in her account is how many different experiences are connected to it. For her to regulate, she talks about the importance of actual physical community, people around her. She talks about how her symptoms became apparent when she actually left the traumatic environment in in Palestine and went to the UK because the support system wasn't there anymore and she was alone, so the isolation. She also talks about this, the interesting connection between like doing yoga to to relieve things, but also prayer and these interconnected experiences of, of subjective life as a way of engaging and the importance of healing others in her own healing work. So that was, that was interesting. And I, and I found it interesting particularly as as I was in Israel and Palestine, also reflecting on a lot of the early Israeli population who had experienced the Shoah coming in to a land. And there's a lot of documentation done on the silence of the trauma. So the unsaid and the unsayability really of what had happened in the Shoah. And I think these two populations existing in these in these traumas, these intergenerational traumas, is a is something that I was exploring in the work, whilst also knowing my real limits of not having lived that myself. Was your view that the unsaid aspect of the trauma had to be at least part of it had to be articulated in some way, or was that do you think that was going to bring some kind of positive remedy or result mm-hmm. to what was going on? And if so, what yeah. what kind of techniques or mediums might this articulation occur in? Engaging in trauma-informed reconciliation practices is essential. I know that that work is happening on many levels, but I think the tricky thing with trauma is that it is, according to some theorists, it is unsayable. So you're dealing with saying what is actually unsayable. And I think Recur gives us really good tools for this, this idea that things will always be lost in the translation process because there's no kind of direct retelling of what had what's gone on so i think trauma-informed reconciliation practices are essential it looks different for each population but they're essential to the work based on the the lived reality of the participants but there is the challenge of saying the unsayable in trauma which continuously presents itself so we try to figure out new ways of saying what is unsayable do we use the body do we use you know, a new metaphor to be used, you know, a new tools uh, to access that. I'm reminded of that passage in uh, Recur's Memory History Forgetting. I think it's in this book, or maybe I'm just recalling it from a conference where some colleague of mine talked about it. Who knows? It's been so long. But there's that moment where Recur talks, I mean, because we're dealing now with issues of victims and forgiveness and blame and responsibility, mm-hmm. all these things, just, you know, very difficult mm-hmm. things to deal with involved in trauma, not all trauma, but but certainly in certain cases, especially the ones where we talk about geopolitical conflicts. 
and histories. And Ricoeur says the importance of forgiving is that it's not politicized, where we just make it a political act to forgive. And for him to be a political act tends to mean that it doesn't really have any substance behind it. There is, so he says there is no politics of forgiveness. And the other aspect is that to recognize in relation to the ensemble is that the, the victim who, in order to forgive the transgressor, may not be ready for it and may not be ready to do that for many different reasons, yet at the same time wants to hold open the possibility for forgiveness to arise or manifest. Mm. And so that's mm. what recurs says, symbolic acts are hugely important there. So instead of just saying, I forgive you, which the victim can't, and which if we just said it, and we all see these cases of the emptiness of people saying, I forgive you when they don't mean it, or I apologize mm. and I don't mean it, those kinds of things. Recur says a symbolic gesture of whatever it might be of a, of a physical gesture, of a gesture of the hand, a gesture of the face, or even a token exchanged or given, which announces uh, that things you know have moved but are still very difficult. Those kinds of things mm. do a lot to hold open the space for for new possibilities, for for progress. I guess uh, to talk mm. about the progress of trying to understand one's own trauma and trying to want to forgive the transgressor for um, what mm. they may have done or what they have done to to the victim. So I just mm. was remembering that, and we often don't think about symbolic gestures well enough. In that context, we think about symbolic gestures probably too much in other contexts, such as uh, uh, political partis partisanism. <laughs> but uh, certainly with forgiveness, it seems like there's a, there's a giant role for that. Have you come across any moments in your own work where such gestures, symbolic gestures, are very effective? I've participated in symbolic gestures, so you know, through music as an act of peacemaking, you, you play music in a specific place and you play a certain song as a specific, you know, remembering. So maybe as music that can become a symbolic gesture. So I think it's also tied to this idea that I'm trying to remember Arabom says that you don't want to say, say something too soon and thereby negate what is being said, like you were saying about forgiveness. And I think that's always so important in this work is I don't want to say so much about something that I've negated what it actually is or rush so quickly into a comprehensive forgiveness that I negate actually what forgiveness is is all about. Yeah. And, and the wounding in the first place. And you, in your book, you talk about the difference between a body-based approach to therapy and a linguistic approach to therapy uh, to embodied trauma. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like what you just described is one of the core tensions between the two where the linguistic can overcompensate mm -hmm. and try to sum things up, you know, bring things to a conclusion as we tend to want to do with words and arguments and statements and whatever it might be. And then there's the body-based approach, which seems much more ambiguous because we're just not very good as, as modern people, we're just not very good at reading the body or understanding our own bodies and things like yeah. that. Is is that a, a right way to characterize the productive tension between the two? Yeah, I think definitely. Do you think that there's more emphasis needed on the body-based approach? It really depends on the circles that you're moving in. I think for philosophy, we need more of the body-based approach. I think, you know, for a kind of a heavily psychoanalytic account, we need more body-based approaches. I think in certain contexts, there's so much body-based approach that we actually do need to do some critical analysis and we need to integrate. 
Winnicott's theory, we need to look at Freud's theory of um, affect of the psyche and Jung's, you know, archetypes. I think there's a role for that. Um, so I do think it depends on even what part of California <laughs> we're doing the trauma work in. <laughs> It'll depend on whether you're from Northern or Southern California for sure. And then uh, <laughs> uh, certain cultural things like that. I think most people outside of California don't realize there's a very drastic difference between how Northern and Southern Californians view themselves and each other, which might need some reconciliation. Uh, before we move to the two closing questions, I wanted to ask you your own view and perspective on what you think is the greatest mental uh, health problem that we're facing today. And if you have any insights into being able mm -hmm. to remedy them or be on the right road towards remedy. I think it's close to what you're talking about with technology. And I think it's this embodied loneliness and this dis disattachment in the midst of profound attachment. So I think it the loneliness can prevent a context for healing. And there's a resourcing that can happen in genuine close relationships, healthy relationships, you know, I mean, that's an ambiguous word, but with, with other people, there's a resourcing that can occur that can allow us to to go through things and we will be witnessed to and we will can we can process with and you know however messy and however you know uninformed the other person is that we're not going through it alone and I, so i think i think there's something about loneliness that presents us with a real challenge at the moment in the midst of profound attachment to, for instance, technology. One of my colleagues was asked to describe technology in a phrase, and he said self-absorption, which I thought was pretty good if you're critical of technology. It's a it's a pretty pretty good way to encapsulate how you can be absorbed by the, the technological media or medium, and then also as a result of that, be in a kind of loneliness, despite how oddly and paradoxically technology is interconnected with all things or most things. So it's a huge problematic area for me and we'll be doing a podcast on philosophy of technology in a few months time so i look mm -hmm. forward to seeing if my colleagues have any productive responses to my concerns and anxieties but we've reached that point in the podcast where i get to ask my guests the two closing questions and the first one anna is is there any one philosophy or philosopher that has been central to your research and the way you live your life and continue to do so? I would say Kierkegaard continues to be a central influence to my work in terms of his idea that we are constantly both ourselves and becoming ourselves. And I think that's something that I keep coming back to, that I am both myself and I am becoming myself. And that paradox of being a human. Kierkegaard nailed it in that. It's a, it's a theme in your book, but you talk about homelessness and that homeness. And because that, that that tension of being yourself and becoming yourself, I can imagine one of the effects is you don't feel at home in the world in which you dwell. So is there a way in which Kierkegaard mm. tries to provide some kind of grounding for that to this dynamic tension between becoming and being? I think he says as we as we become more of ourselves, we become more anxious and more despairing. And yet we also find a rest and a peace as we confront the infinite other. So for him this journey of self-becoming is, is rooted in a relation to the infinite, which is a, a ground of peace. So we both become anxious and more anxious as we realize, you know, our false self whilst also being 
sorry, being at home on the way to home. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for our audience? For Levinas, he says that to think that suffering can be understood is philosophically reductive. I think there's something in that, that as we try to understand our suffering, we both understand it more and it also evades us. And I think there's something deeply wise in that idea. Suffering is both understood and continuously revealed to us and so misunderstood. Anna Weston, thank you for being a guest on Living Philosophy. Thank you so much for having me. If you would like to know more about Anna's research, you can find her on the St. Mary's University and St. Melitus University websites. If you want to know more about her music and her recent album, Lev, you can find her on Spotify. As always, the podcast blurb will include more information about our guests, the topics discussed in this episode, and links to our sponsors. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Philosophy to You, Transitioning Your Life, Hermeneutics in Real Life, and The Infinite Staircase. If you would like to become a sponsor, please get in touch with us via the philosophytoyou.com website. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast and help spread the word. My name is Dr. Todd May. Thank you for listening to Living Philosophy, and I hope you'll join us for our next podcast. Until then, don't just read philosophy, live philosophy.